You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Gordon Fowler, president and CEO of Glenmead, an investment and wealth management firm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Gordon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Laura, for having me on your show. Now, before we get into the official communication, leadership, all that important stuff, I've got one different question to ask you. We are currently engaged in social distancing and all the fun that comes along with it, but what's one silver lining that you've discovered in the midst of it all? I think the biggest silver lining is I'm staying here with our son, and it's been a while since we've had a chance to live together, and this has been great to have the opportunity to spend more time with him and develop a relationship with him at this point in both of our lives. That's great. I think a lot of families are reconnecting through this, so there are definitely silver linings to be found. We just have to remember to look for them sometimes. Now, as we get into the meat of the conversation, let's start talking about you and your personal professional journey. At the top, where you are now, as president, as CEO of the organization, who do you need to influence? Oh, uh, just about everybody. Uh, so that would include board directors, employees, clients, everybody. It's been interesting as a journey because I would say when I was starting off in this business, a lot of the influence I could exert or would exert or try to exert would be direct, one-on-one -on -one type of influence. I find as I moved up and where I am now, a lot of the influence is indirect. You're trying to communicate not just with the people that are reporting directly to you, but communicate with the people one, two, three rungs below there. And in this remote time, it's even more indirect. Sure. Because you can go out and have Zoom calls with people and one on one meetings, but you have to be careful when you're working with somebody who does not work directly with you, you know, you could very easily disempower all of your managers mm -hmm. by having conversations where you're influencing, but maybe a little too much influencing. Mm -hmm. In fact, what I do find is you have to spend a lot of time listening. That's the best form of influencing that you can do and then reflecting back to the manager. Sure. And listening is one of those skills that we forget is an important part of communication. We're so focused <laughs> on speaking well and being clear and being concise, and we forget that it's a two-way streak and we need to be good on right. both ends. Right. So what is one specific communication skill or skill set that you had to learn to develop, and maybe it's listening or something else, in order to get to your current role and be successful there? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is keep it short and keep it memorable. Mm. People who are in management spend time, you know, working on strategic designs of what they want to accomplish. Those designs inevitably are thoughtful, long, and detailed. Mm. But when was the last time you remembered a strategic plan? <laughs> you know, but you could just recite. <laughs> when was the last the time you actually head? finished reading reading one? Exactly. And I do remember working for someone who came in 
he was new to the organization. And I think he would, there are some pluses and minuses to his experience there. But one thing he was excellent at was communicating where he wanted the organization to go strategically. He had three phrases, manage margins aggressively, improve performance, and build out our online financial service. And I think I heard him state those things about 30 years ago, and they still roll right off my tongue. And that's a really important communication skill to have in senior management. And the simplicity of those three phrases, I think, are really critical. Number one, the number three is Mm -hmm. a good set of things that people can remember more than that and, and something has to give. But the fact that each of those is so concrete, so clear in its end result, and so really short words for the most part, that it's what I like to call tweetable and repeatable something that you can put in a tweet real quick. It's easy to remember. It's easy to recite and thus to share. And it just sticks better. And whether you're you're a leader in a company or a politician, to get your core messages down to those tweetable and repeatable sound bites, I, I think is an incredibly powerful skill that's not hard to do, but most people don't bother. So thank you for sharing that in the business context. Now, this is something that you've clearly learned how to do, but what's a mistake that you made along the way or maybe a lesson you learned the hard way? And if you could go back and have a do-over, like we used to yell at kids on the playground, what would your do-over look like? Oh, boy. Um, you're making me go through a painful experience. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's just between you and me. It's totally... Oh, good. Nobody's going to do No, no, no. no. It's great. I promise. Okay. My lips are sealed. I'd say one of my first challenging management situations was coming into an organization or coming into a part of the company where I had to really you know, affect some pretty serious changes. And I chose managers who I thought were well aligned with where I wanted to go. But what I didn't analyze sufficiently was how well they communicated with people. Mm. They communicated relatively well enough with me, but with the people that ended up working for them, not as well. Mm. One person, in fact, turned out to be a bit of a bully. And that just set off a whole set of repercussions. Sure. So if you could have the do-over, how would you have ascertained their communication skills with their direct reports from the start? Probably watching them in action a little bit, probably Mm -hmm. being just sensitive to how they communicated in meetings with others, maybe before elevating them into such a senior set of roles, probably putting them in in a smaller set of roles, seeing how they did. And quite frankly, I should have done the communication more myself. Mm. Some more direct coaching with them. Yeah. And start to realize there's a problem. Yep. Always challenging. Then what's the next big goal for you, whether on a personal level or for the organization? And what communication skills will you need to develop in order to reach it? So I think one of the biggest, most interesting things, we're in the wealth management business. Um, that's a large part of what we do. And a lot of that sales and relationship management effort is very direct. It's sitting down across a coffee table or a lunch table or something like that and starting to connect and develop a relationship. Now, I'm quite sure this crisis will end at some point, but I'm not sure all of the attitudes and approaches will. I think online, not in-person type of work is going to continue. You know, we're going to see more relationship management done online. We're going to see more sales done online. And so I think the next big challenge for our organization communications wise is going to be how do we 
do that well? How do we end up being able to manage and develop relationships online? How do we do sales online? And personally, for me, that's going to be important for me to know from a strategic perspective and also from a role modeling perspective out there. So when you talk about the online relationship development, et cetera, is this the sense of video specifically, how to incorporate video, or is that one aspect or not just about doing the whole thing, whether it's websites or faceless webinars of sorts, or is it more about the face-to-face? It really is the whole thing, you know, because you develop in relationship management, you start to have communications, not just in person, but also online through a website and through email and like, how do you have those conversations? How do you monitor those conversations? Mm. And then sales is also, you know, a mixture of medias. It could be Zoom, or it could be having a program of sending out emails and then knowing who's getting them, who's opening them, who's connecting and and clicking through them, and figuring out what you do to get people to click through (laughs) to those emails. Right, right. So bringing everything online even more so than we already thought we were online uh, to an incredible amount, and yet it's not enough. We're not going to give up personal contact, but I just think it's going to be a mixture going forward. I think previous to all this, it was either in-person or telephone. And the video component was very much avoided. Let's let's put it delicately yes. that that way it's been avoided by many. And now suddenly that's no longer going to be an option. There's going to be the expectation well, of, of doing more video work, at least from what I'm hearing and seeing from many others. I love the lesson learned that I think I heard from you the other day, which is don't sit in front of a window with light coming through <laughs> it because it looks like your face is in the witness protection program. All you have to do is put your voice on a sort of a scramble and you're, you're, right. you're in trouble. Hiding out from the mafia or something, right? So for those of you who aren't on video right now, who aren't watching this uh, the recording on YouTube, which is available, that's so critical. Just making sure that you're not backlit when you're on video, that people can see your face, they can see your expression. Everything for me is about the three C's, right? Being able to command the room connect with the audience and close the deal. And if they can't see your face, how can you command anything? And you certainly can't connect with them. So what deal do you think you're going to close? If nothing else, make sure people can see your face, get the lighting in the right direction. Thank you for bringing that up. Now, this brings us to one of my favorite parts of the show, which is the listener 24-hour influence challenge. This is your chance to think about these issues that we've been discussing and to challenge our listeners, challenge everybody else out there What's one step that you want them all to take in the next 24 hours to help themselves have greater influence? Okay, so this gets back to something I said earlier about make sure that when you're speaking, it's short and compact. Take a presentation that you're going to be giving over the next few days, think about it a bit, and then cut it in length. In fact, cut it in length by two-thirds and bring it down still to a level where you're leaving your audience with those memorable messages that you want to leave them with. Wow. And believe me, that's not easy because as maybe Mark Twain or maybe somebody else said, it takes a lot of effort to write a short letter. In fact, it's easier to write a long letter. Right. Same thing with giving a presentation. It's hard to make something compact yet powerful. Yes. Not just bland. And short. I think his quote was something along the lines of, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But to your point, if you want people to remember certain takeaways, can you figure out what those are? If you're going to give them a half an hour worth of information, knowing they're only going to remember five minutes, 
if you don't figure out what those five minutes are and what the other 25 minutes are that they can sort of forget along the way, how are they going to know which five minutes to retain and which ones to get rid of? So make sure that you're clear on those. All right, everybody, take your PowerPoint presentations and slash them by two thirds, and then make sure you know what your key takeaways are. Now, since it's 24 hours, you just have to figure out what that one third is going to be. You can fix all the slides later. We'll give you a, a little extension on that. I've seen what people do with the slides. They just jam all the information on three slides or something like that. That's That doesn't work too well. So that's not what you're looking at. It's not cutting the number of slides, but keeping the same information. No, 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 no. <laughs> right. Small print. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times in PowerPoint format. Yeah. I tell a lot of people that in trying to smash more into fewer slides, it's like when your teenager comes home and says, dad, I need $200 because I have to buy this new pair of basketball sneakers. And you say, well, what do you need $200 for? My shoes don't even cost that much. And they say, but it's really not that much because you only have to give me two bills. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Bullet points, you know, on the slides is not better. It's still the same amount of currency of sorts. Just you haven't slashed the total price tag. Right. So no cheating. Gordon's looking and he knows your tricks before you even start. So take that 24-hour <laughs> challenge and slash the amount of information, not just the number of slides, by two-thirds. I love it. Way to call them on the bluff. Now, this brings us to a slightly different approach. Actually, it's a good transition because we started talking about you and your journey. And now I want to know what you look for in others. How do we guide others on the journey? So when you think about things like succession planning, career advancement, priorities, et cetera, let's talk first about the whole concept of executive presence, otherwise known as leadership presence, command presence, that X factor that makes you feel like, boy, that person is really has it, the leadership something. How would you define it and or how would you evaluate it in others? Okay, so I've got two comments on that one. The first is, I think this is something that you need to personalize. Different people have different types of leadership. So let's just take President Obama and the most recent President Bush. They both had executive presence. One had sort of a folksy authoritativeness, maybe something like a baseball team owner or something like that. And the other was a more thoughtful and professional sort of presence. So I think first thing is you got to find a style that's going to work for you. The second thing I would say about executive presence is it's a learnable skill. You know, some people will say, well, he's a natural leader or he's got that natural talent. There's nothing natural about any of this. It's something that you can learn to do. So the things that I look for, are they receptive to coaching? Is that something that works for them? And even in the reference checks, you check to see whether they are receptive to coaching. And the second thing is just raw talent. You know, do they have the capacity and ability to learn? That's sometimes not just a willingness, but an IQ type of thing. And when you're trying to groom a high potential employee for maybe an executive position of some sort, what are the three most important communication skills that you look for? So I would say clarity of thought, which leads to clarity of vision that ends up being articulated. I would say a level of creativity. You have to hold your audience's attention and uh, you can't just sort of spout out what is the corporate line and expect to hold people's attention. And third thing I'd just say is just authenticity. Does this come across as genuine? Does this come across as something you really believe in? 
I'd say those are the three big ones. And that second one about holding people's attention can be particularly difficult, especially in extremely high technical fields mm. like yours, like finances, markets, asset management, and doing it online is even harder at that point. How do you, if you're talking to an audience that's not as savvy, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of technical detail yeah. in there. How do you make it so others don't just glaze over when you're trying to explain really important things to them? So your best friend is analogies. If you can figure out how to use, when you're in a technical world, analogies to your benefit, that'll make things a lot clearer. And even if your analogies don't completely work, it invites your audience to have sort of fun with it. Can you give an example of a fun analogy you've used? Oh boy, with, with investment management, I'd say, well, here's a critique I've heard. Okay. I remember hearing this from a client talking about somebody else, not necessarily me. Of course not. Uh, but a, <laughs> a person gave a highly technical sort of explanation to a question and the client sort of stepped back and said, you know, all I really wanted to know was what the time is. You told me how to make the watch. Mm. Hey, you probably heard that one before, but I like that one. No, it's a great it's analogy. It's very, very, very applicable to our industry. To most, I would imagine that, yeah. uh, you know, we, <laughs> we, we tend to suffer from what I like to call the expert's curse, which is where you just know too much and you don't understand why others wouldn't want to know all of that and or why they don't need to know or can't process all that information. So how do you cherry pick just what they need and why? And we were talking about this earlier, the skill. I would say 70% of giving a presentation is listening. Mm. <laughs> because if you've listened to the question correctly, in fact, if you've engaged your audience, and this needs to be more one-on-one, -on -one, if you've engaged your audience to know what they're thinking, how they're framing, what you might be talking about, you're in a much better position to be able to talk through a subject. Yes. All right, everybody, learn those skills then would that be a red flag? Or is there a different red flag that would be a bigger career derailer or otherwise stop you from hiring or promoting somebody? Well, I think one of the biggest red flags is if somebody uses a lot, the words I, me, or my. Mm. This is tricky because I think coaches sometimes tell interview candidates to sort of take ownership or represent sort of what they've done. But I do find if I hear a lot of that coming from somebody, particularly if you're hiring them into a management role, you know, you might be dealing with somebody who, you know, is perfectly fine as a loan producer or a specialist. But once you're in a management, it's all about we. We did this. We are going this direction. And their inability to communicate in the plural may get in the way of empowering and delegating authority. and. A further thing is if it's all I mean my, this is a person that might need a lot of care and feeding. Mm. Again, might be a real talent. You might want them in the organization. Just realize what sort of roles that they might fit in. Right. Then what about the concept of managing up? You're putting this person in a management, some sort of leadership position, but they still need to report to you at some point. So managing up being the idea of when your direct reports are perhaps indirect are presenting information to you personally, what's a pet peeve? What's something you wish they would do less of or perhaps more of? So I would say do the do's and don'ts. Do start with a conclusion, even if it's a short one. Then explain your reasoning. Don't make your presentation a mystery novel. Don't make me wait 
until you've sort of led me through the journey that you've gone through to sort of come up with your brilliant conclusion and then do a big reveal at the end. I mean, I don't need that. Mm. Start with a conclusion. I think the other thing is be prepared to give a presentation where it's going to be interactive. We all know we learn better if it's an interactive presentation than if it's a lecture. Yeah. Realize your boss is just like that too. You know, some bosses will, you know, just not let you get through. And I probably have been guilty of that once or twice. But that's partly because I and others sort of want to learn through an interactive process. So prepare for that. And don't get flustered when somebody starts doing that with you. So then invite them to do so, at which point then you get to control the structure of that interaction a bit more, yes? Yes, or sort of structure your presentation so that it has pauses and um, uh, one really great piece of communication that, that I was taught, and I think this was at some point taught in terms of dealing with the press, that one of the things you want to do when getting ready for an interview with the press is have the three or four points, really three, that you wanted to get across mm-hmm. and make sure that when the reporter asks you a question that you don't try to snow them, but you do direct the question back to one or a few of those points and creatively, respectfully move the conversation there. That's not a bad thing with preparing for a presentation with your boss. Sure. Now, that's an interesting challenge for a lot of people, the ability to get to the conclusion first and then explain the why. And it's something that I find a lot of people experience as an intercultural challenge because there are many languages and many cultures that are, I'm going to say, designed, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to do the exact opposite. I lived in Japan for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Japanese languages very much give all the background first. And then once you understand the full picture, then tell me what the conclusion is. They think, how can you give me the conclusion first? How could I possibly understand your rationale unless I understand where you're coming from? So when people are coming from those cultures, and of course, Japan is just one of many, but Mm -hmm. if that's the way that you were raised, that's the way your primary language is dictated that you think and that you organize your stories and, and your arguments of sorts. And then suddenly you come to work in an American corporation of some sort where they're saying, nope, everything you just learned, everything you've been doing for your whole life since you started to learn word one is wrong and you have to do it this way, it can really be challenging, not just to prove yourself technically, but to have to learn to completely rethink and represent your ideas. And you're absolutely right. And that's part of the reason managers need to have some level of cultural awareness because it's not fair to do that with somebody who's been trained their whole life to think and approach things in a different way. But it's also an opportunity to go and coach people on what they need to succeed within a certain business environment. And every business environment has its own culture. This gets back to sort of this point about making sure that you sort of approach things that almost all skills are learnable, give people an opportunity to learn how to do just what we talked about. Yes. Gordon, this takes us to the speed round, the last section of our interview today. Now, these are three of the most common themes and challenges that typically arise in my coaching and training when working with clients. And I find that people tend to think of them in terms of black and white, either or issues, and they struggle with these false choices, false dichotomies. And they also tend to struggle because they feel like they're the only one struggling with these issues. So I want to help them understand that this is not the case. It's not a black and white. And more importantly, they're not alone. So I'm going to pitch you a couple of 
concepts here. And I want you to tell me in a single word or phrase up front where you stand on some of these choices. And then I'll ask you a follow-up afterward to give a little bit more advice and to give a bit more detail from there. So first, public speaking, love it or hate it? Love the challenge. Okay, let's talk about that, the challenge piece. The challenge can also often make people's nerves and anxiety take over. Mm-hmm. So what's a tip you can give people about how to speak with confidence? So if I've got a big public presentation, I always get a little nervous. You know, there are always butterflies in my stomach, even if it's with a group I've talked with before and done it before. I always get a little nervous, but it's almost like the nervousness of sort of stepping up to the plate and getting ready for a big pitch. The tips I would have would be one, have fun, get yourself in the mood where you're almost laughing a little bit, at least if part of your job here is to convey enthusiasm, obviously not the attitude for a eulogy. (laughs) The other thing is try not to memorize your words, Mm. try instead to memorize an outline or the flow of what, where you would like things to go. Yes. That's a skill. That's a skill. You're not going to be able to do that on day one. Sure. I couldn't agree more that memorization is just a recipe for disaster. Because if someone interrupts you, they ask a question, you lose your flow, then trying to remember where in the course of the script you're supposed to pick up again, you're doomed. Just You got to know your stuff better than that. And, you know, look, different people need different techniques. Winston Churchill, one of the greatest public speakers of all time, tried to give one speech extemporaneously, his first one in public and parliament. It was a miserable failure. He read his speeches from that point forward. Most coaches would not recommend to you that you read your speech, but for Winston, that's what worked and didn't hurt his career. <laughs> At least that didn't. <laughs> no, but I think there's there's two issues that are really critically important in there. Number one, that was a few years ago, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So expectations for public performance and the frequency of how often people are on video, much less just audio mm-hmm. connected, is, is very different. So Uh, standards have shifted quite markedly on that point. And uh, I think there'd be a lot less tolerance if we were to read everything verbatim nowadays. But also, you mentioned something really important, which is the idea of he tried to do something extemporaneously, and it failed. So he went to scripting. And those are two really, really extreme ends of the spectrum, right? That either you just wing it, or you script it and you pigeonhole yourself into that word. There's so much gray, and it's really about preparation, not so much about memorization or totally off the cup winging it. So it's one of those pieces that I want to encourage people to think about how can you prepare, but not in a way that handcuffs you. And you're absolutely right, because I will say, even if I'm giving the same presentation that I've given about 15, 20 times, I always go through a preparation routine. If I'm working with a flip book, I always write down in the lower right-hand corner, the intro phrase to the next page. Yes. And that is my intro words, something that will remind me how I make a transition and I'm not going, and here we have. (laughs) Um, And it's a little ritual also. It just sort of gives me comfort and prepares me. That's great. I'm so happy you said that. I've always said that building a presentation is like building a house. You need bricks and you need mortar. And your slides are the bricks, But if all you have is a pile of bricks, it's not going to make much of a house. you got to stick them together somehow. So it's not just enough to know what you want to say about the slide, but you have to understand how this slide relates to the next one and why it's in this order. So if you can tee that up and you know your transitions in advance, that's what makes a really smooth, well-integrated presentation. So thank you, thank you, thank you for teeing that one up. 
So everybody, please follow that. <laughs> Flipbook or otherwise, know your transitions, plan your transitions, don't wing those. It makes a huge difference. Then what about this one? Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Introvert. Did that surprise you? <laughs> the delay was supposed to be the clue. Introvert. <laughs> In that kind of introversion, as you are, are demonstrating it, what would be one related strength to being an introvert and what's an area for growth? I think the biggest strength that introverts have is potentially they're very good active listeners. They are consuming information. They're consuming it and being able to react to whoever they're working with so that it's not just me talking about me or what's on my mind, but sort of talking about you. I think the biggest weakness or the biggest growth area for an introvert is inevitably you may be listening to somebody speak and you're giving them props in your mind all the way through, but you've got a look of, they have no clue that you think they're doing a great job. You have to discipline yourself to externally acknowledge the value of what they've done and the contribution they've made. Sure. It's great that you're listening, but they can't read your mind. One of my favorite comparisons is, you know, I would say I will often be speaking to rooms that are filled with portfolio managers and salespeople. Mm. And the salespeople are great at giving you continual positive visual feedback. Nodding their heads. Nodding their heads. Turning their head to the side. A portfolio manager's, you know, they tend to be thinkers. They tend to be a little more introverted. They'll sort of, and quite frankly, a little skeptical. Uh, you know, <laughs> there might be a frown on their face sure. the whole time. So sort of the straight stone face. And of course, I'll go up afterwards and go, you know, you didn't seem happy with what I said at all. So, and the response often will be, oh, no, what you said was fine. I, I, I agree with what you said. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, a little... A little positive feedback would be just great. <laughs> or negative feedback, but just let me know. I can't read a blank page. You're not exactly. giving me anything to work off of, right? It's like talking to a room full of cats. <laughs> You're looking at me, but I can't read the expression <laughs> on your face. Work with me here. Okay. So being more uh, proactive and mindful of trying to give people feedback, not expecting them to read the mind of sorts. Last one. Let's talk about handling conflict. Is your natural tendency to want to engage? Or avoid? So my natural tendency is to want to be a peacemaker. I don't really want to fight and I don't want to flee the situation. My natural tendency is to want to try to figure out a way to sort of get two groups or two people to sort of see each other's perspective. That is part of my DNA. I, I will tell you, there are times when you just have to take a side. Sure. And, you know, it's not a matter of this point of view is equally valid with this point of view. Mm. So every so often a, a peacemaker has to flip into being a decider. I think that's the challenge for peacemakers. And so what's a piece of advice that you can give those peacemakers who are uncomfortable taking sides? Oh, I think knowing quite often that your audience just wants a resolution may not be exactly what they wanted to hear. You can do it diplomatically, but a resolution is good, and you can follow up with people later on. Gordon, how can more people learn about you and Glenmead? Well, you know, online, <laughs> getting back to that earlier subject, we've got a ton of information on Glenmead, 
we put our annual review, which is sort of a good primer on Glenmead, not only online in written form, but it's also online in a verbal presentation. You can listen to it. That's a great way of doing it. Or you can just give, give us a call. We love to talk. We love to hear about you. Please give me a call or give a uh, call to any of the people in our offices. And the phone numbers can be found where? Phone numbers can be found on our website. Which is? www.glenmead.com. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining and sharing your insights today, Gordon. Great. Thank you. Now, I want to thank everybody else also for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and give us a five-star rating on iTunes so that we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my quick start guide to mastering the three C's, command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal, please go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. Thanks for joining. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.